The Reluctant Conformist A Book by Richard Cowley Chapter 5, Episode 2 The Geologist His new assignment was aboard an American drill ship located in the South China Sea not far off the coast of Vietnam. At the time, the war between the Americans and Ho Chi Minh's Viet Cong was raging great guns, and occasionally an American military aircraft would fly low to buzz the rig. Magnus's accommodation aboard the rig was appalling. A minuscule two-berth cabin where he and his co-worker were expected to hotbed with members of the Indonesian crew. On the other hand, the American drilling personnel and the Italian oil company representatives lived in spacious two-berth cabins with only a single occupant. Since arriving on the rig, Magnus had had a running battle with the bargemaster, who was responsible for allocating rig-board living accommodation. This bigoted Yankee imbecile was a coarse tobacco-chewing hillbilly, whose only claim to fame was that the blood in his veins was reputed to be one-sixteenth Cherokee. What the mongrel's remaining blood supply was made up of was anybody's guess. Magnus supposed creosote the most probable. Magnus persistently lobbied and cajoled the spineless Italians who hired the rig and for whom he was contracted to work to provide suitable accommodation for himself and his colleague. Eventually, they were allocated bunks in the ship's hospital, an improvement, but only just. In general, Magnus had enjoyed working with Americans from a wide cross-section of society and from various states of the Union. Some of the American personnel working on the rig in the South China Sea were, however, a different breed entirely. They were the most unpleasant men he'd had to endure during the entire time he'd worked in oil exploration. Whoever recruited these degenerates seemed to have gone out of their way to scour the xenophobic dregs from the cesspit of American oilfield rejects. But it wasn't all misery. The shoreside base was Singapore, and even though in the early 1970s the island still gave off a lingering whiff of bad drains, it remained a mysterious and exotic place to reconnoitre. The recent riotous behaviour of American GIs on rest and recuperation leave from war-torn Vietnam had ceased, allowing Singapore to regain its poise and dignity. In the overcrowded island city-state, all the oriental delights of wine, women and song were still available and in never-ending supply, but Magnus's heart lay elsewhere. Throughout this period, Magnus and Sophia maintained a regular flow of airmail correspondence. There was no internet and international landline telephone calls were expensive and rarely used. After a big cognac-speaking night celebrating his Chinese hotel owner's first grandson's first month of life, Magnus's thoughts, as they often did, turned to Sophia. To hear her soft, comforting voice, he took the unusual step of folding her in Brisbane. Unfortunately, he got the time difference between Singapore and Eastern Australia the wrong way round. So Sophia's phone rang whilst the household was fast asleep. Alarmed at the possibility of an emergency, for why else would anybody call in the middle of the night, Sophia's parents hurriedly called her to the phone. On hearing her dreamy voice, Magnus realised how much he missed her, and commented upon how happy he was to hear her soft Australian burr. 
In his state of late-night woozy euphoria, he cooed these slurred endearments repeatedly. During the remainder of his leave in Singapore, he composed a letter in which he speculated upon the idea of marriage. Back on the rig, where receiving a letter was a greatly anticipated luxury, he eagerly awaited a reply. Sophia's letter duly arrived, but it wasn't what he was hoping for. He got a flea in his ear for waking and upsetting the whole household in the middle of the night and repeatedly harping on about her accent, which she took to be an insult of her proud Australian heritage. Naturally, Magnus was nonplussed and flabbergasted on reading the letter and agonised over what to do. He finally elected to do nothing for a few days, as the timing suggested the letters must have crossed in the post. After a week of agonising anticipation, a second letter arrived, and the contents were much more to his liking. An interchange of airmail sealed their fate, and Sophia would make all the arrangements for a wedding to take place in Brisbane some two months later. Once again, like so many things in his life, all he had to do was be there, and therein lay a seemingly insurmountable problem. Inconveniently, the Singapore manager had gone on an extended vacation to Europe, and Magnus's rig relief had been appointed as temporary company representative in the Singapore office for the duration of the manager's absence. These arrangements prevented Magnus leaving the rig, let alone making any wedding or travel plans. He remained trapped in the middle of the South China Sea, and with every passing week the wedding day was edging closer. After two months of protests and threats, he finally learned that his prolonged incarceration aboard the unhappy drilling ship was about to end. His colleague would return on the next crew change, and Magnus would be able to climb aboard the Bristow helicopter en route to the volcanic island of Nantuna Bissar, where the crew handovers took place. If I go to leave, uh, is not on the plane. Please uh, make sure you come back, pleaded Macagnani, the Italian geologist. Please, uh, Magnus, it is très important. This was the proviso attached to his release. If his relief wasn't aboard the plane from Singapore, he had to return to the rig. Oil exploration requires a full complement of hands to ensure round-the-clock work continues uninterrupted. The Douglas DC-3 touched down on the rough grass strip situated between the base of an enormous volcano and a picturesque lagoon infested with sea snakes and sharks. Magnus studied those disembarking from the antique plain with a mixture of annoyance and apprehension. If his relief didn't appear, what would he do? Abandon his responsibilities and climb aboard the plane to journey to his future bride? Or return to work aboard an unhappy drill ship vibrating with hate and tribal tensions? If he returned to the rig, Sophia's family would suffer their second wedding cancellation within six months, and, in all probability, he'd have to look elsewhere for nuptial happiness. One of the last to disembark the plane was the short, fat Luxembourgian he'd been hoping to see. Magnus didn't greet his colleague with word or gesture, just followed him with his eyes in a face that radiated contempt and loathing for leaving him trapped on the rig for so long. The Luxembourgian wasn't entirely detestable, though. He'd cultivated a zany streak that on occasions reflected a whimsical dadaist humour. He had once boasted, in a thickly accented outburst, If I am very rich, I replace millions of Hotel Gideon Bible with lookalikes that, when opened, 
go bang and fire an electric shock up the arms of the nosy packer. The newly arrived relief crew boarded the Bristow helicopter and flew onwards to the drill ship, leaving the grass strip clear. The Indonesians going to Tanjung Penang and the Westerners bound for Singapore clambered aboard the old DC-3 that had just flown in and belted up ready for takeoff. The aeroplane engines throbbed, the propellers whined, and the aircraft bounced alarmingly until the brakes were let go. In an instant, the plane bounded and skipped along the rough grass airstrip, rapidly gathering speed. With an almighty explosion, the starboard propeller stopped dead, the plane slewed violently sideways, and smoking oil spewed out of the right-hand engine vents across the wing. The plane lurched to a standstill, and with the other engine smothered, all was white-faced stillness and silence. Once those aboard realised they weren't going to be catapulted into the lagoon, and death had been deferred for another day, they spilled out onto the airstrip as fast as they could escape, cheerfully slapping one another on the back, laughing and hooting madly as they went. So there they were, with a broken aeroplane, somewhere in the South China Sea, trapped on a narrow strip of land on the coastal flank of a monstrous volcano. Now what? Magnus mused. At last a dash for freedom, and now this. However, things are rarely as bad as they seem. The helicopter base was designed with emergency situations in mind, and had ample dining and sleeping accommodation for all. Also, a different crew from another oil rig was to be relieved the following day, and there appeared to be two vacant seats on the flight to Singapore. As soon as Magnus heard this news, he started lobbying to secure one of those seats. It wasn't easy, as he was up against tool pushers and drilling superintendents, Americans of influence who generally got their own way, the very cohort who had denied him suitable living accommodation on the drill ship. I demand a seat on the plane. I've been trapped for eight weeks on that junk heap in the middle of the South China Sea, and thanks to you lot, living in shithouse accommodation. Whilst during that time, you've enjoyed three stints of shoreside leave, with your feet up swinging whiskey sours in Raffles Long Bar. Also, I'm not coming back. I've got nothing to lose, except missing my wedding in Australia, and I'm not doing that. I don't have second thoughts, he crowed through tight lips and with bulging eyes of somebody gone troppo from too long offshore. Much to his surprise, he got his way, but not before repeating similar threats and demands to all who could hear. It's unlikely he endeared himself to anybody that day, nor made any new friends. The next morning, he was the first to climb aboard the other DC-3 to claim one of the two spare seats. However, he believed his case was just and after the vile treatment from the Yankee bargemaster, a hint of payback was sweet indeed. The loathsome sixteen-part Cherokee redneck was one of those left behind, marooned on the volcanic island. Three days later, dressed smartly in a dark blue suit and matching tie, Magnus relaxed in the Brisbane airport bar, waiting to be collected after his flight from Singapore. His eyes caught a quick movement from behind his newspaper. He looked up to glimpse an exquisitely graceful form bounding into the lounge. This leggy apparition of glowing good health and loveliness, sheathed in figure-flattering long-sleeved top, tantalizing hot pants, and stylish raised-heel slippers, all in eye-catching scarlet, whose blonde hair shone like silk against a matching scarlet beret, 
was beauty indeed. I came as fast as I could, gasped Sophie Elizabeth breathlessly. Welcome home. Good gracious, Magnus thought. This exquisite vision is here for me. For a moment, he couldn't say anything. He just smiled in wonderment. You look gorgeous, was all he could manage, but thought, you lucky dog, Magnus. And this fortuitous sequence of events was how the twenty-seven-year-old Magnus Henry came to call Australia home, and how, eventually, Magnus and Sophia's daughters, Willow, Victoria, and Fenella Jeanette, and their five children, learned to sing, waltzing Matilda, as happy and contented, true blue Aussies. <laughs>